Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. We're really excited to have Ben Van Roo with us today on the show to do a deep dive on SBIRs. Ben is the CEO and co-founder of Yurts Technologies, an application development platform for large AI models. Prior to Yurts, Ben built the national security team at Primer Technologies and was a national security policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucas. I appreciate it. Awesome. We're so excited to have you. You know, uh, we, we've had many conversations with uh, different folks uh, over the last couple of months about SB- SBIRs and government contracting and all of those topics. But you have written uh, some amazing blog posts that uh, so many people in the industry were chatting uh, as you dove deep uh, into SBIRs and all the data uh, as, as it pertains to it. So maybe to kick us off, could you please give us, you know, just a broad overview for those who don't know of what SBIRs are, what is their purpose, their history, and, and who benefits from them? Yeah, um, well, happy to. The SBIR program is a uh, government-funded small business and innovation research is is the the acronym, and it has a sister program called the Small Technology Transfer uh, and Research. That's the STTR, which is more towards uh, oriented towards academia joint partnerships with industry. But the SBIR program itself is really trying to um, allocate small portions of different federal agencies' dollars towards small business. Um, it, it was it was born out of the NSF in the mid-70s. Um, there were some really interesting wins that they got right away in the, in the late 70s. I think um, the gene for cystic fibrosis was discovered and the human genome map, a company that discovered that that received SBIR dollars. So in the 80s, uh, Reagan uh, memorialized it. It became fully funded. Today, there's 11 agencies that participate uh, in the SBIR program. About a little under 50% of those dollars um, that are in the SBIR program are DOD-focused, which is part of, obviously, the conversation today. And and what it is, is it's uh, about $3 billion-ish total um, I would say a billion and a half, you know, roughly comes out of uh, the DD's budget, targeting small businesses um, for uh, innovative research. Now, that's kind of a, a blanket statement because it, and you know, we'll we'll obviously dive into it more, but it it means many things to many people. Um, foundationally, it was really started on very early research um, in how the NSF uses it, but in the DoD today which is again, the largest customer or the largest allocator of dollars, it, it can be used for many things. Um, and so what we saw in, in, in the work that, that I did, I really was trying to understand where the dollars were, were going, who's winning the dollars, who's being awarded these dollars and why. Um, and, and so what my main focus of the work that I did was really focused on the DOD side of the SBIR program not on what NSF, DOE, HHS, others were doing. And so, you know, the the program just so happened to be when I was doing the research and the writing that I did up for reauthorization. So um, some of it was just kind of a a timely analysis. And then um, 
you know, some of my journey, it, it took on a little bit of a, a life of its own. Amazing. So before we dive deeper into it, can you just say briefly, um, what do you think should be the goal of of those SBR uh, of the SBR program specifically? Let's dive in specifically with regards to the DoD. Yeah. So you know, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a biased person. Uh, I have a small business. I I am applying to uh, some of the SBIR awards that will be coming out. Um, but but objectively, uh, I, what I'm when I look at the SBIR program, I, I think a lot of the agencies outside of the DoD have done a pretty good job with its original purpose. Uh, they're grant dollars that help uh, fund innovative research that potentially can be transitioned to real companies. Within the DoD itself, it's taken on a bit of a different life. Um, for uh, And this is kind of when I say that it means everything to, to everyone and, and nothing to everyone. Some people still think it's for fundamental research. And so there are questions of, does that, does that augment the national labs? Some people think it's we're protecting the manufacturing, uh, the defense manufacturing base. And I would definitely argue that is not the case. And, and that is not necessarily happening with the way that we're, the, the, the dollars are being awarded today. Some think it's really about um, transitioning dual use technology. And you, you see with the growth of things like AFWorks and the Open Topic, and then all the subsequent agencies that are participating in something like that, it's a little bit, they pitch it a little bit more on transitioning technologies and bringing new commercial technologies in. And then there's another group that just think, hey, this is discretionary funds. There are match comms that spend dollars. They want to use it for X or a program manager wants to use it for Y. Let's do that. And so um, that's me avoiding the question. What do I think it should be used for? I think we're at a really unique time in our our history as a as a nation. I think for the DoD particular, uh, the very nature of war is shifting, and I think that's completely unfolding in Ukraine right now, away from large uh, platforms. And, and I mean, this has not been an overnight shift, but it's just brought onto iPhone cameras and Twitter more for the entire world to see. We're looking less um, at large exquisite platforms, big garrison style bases. Um, the idea of projecting power uh, is it's, it's very different uh, in, over the next 20, 30, 40 years than what it has been in the past. Um, and, and so what, you know, when I think about it as, as try to think about the strategy, I say, okay, so that world's different. Commercial sector has far, far outpaced the defense sector in terms of technology innovation. And so, so, and then the third thing is we have a really slow bureaucracy in the defense world. Um, I try to stay away from talking about the the PPV um, cycle in, in any of my blogs because it's just it's very cumbersome. It's robust. I mean, there was an, a memo that the working group from PPV talking about reform of acquisition wrote, which basically says we're going to keep meeting and thinking about reform. So that in and of itself says like, okay, this is. This is, um, we are not changing the bureaucracy at whole. So I think, frankly, we have a weird and interesting opportunity where a lot of companies in the commercial sector are looking to either get involved with the government because they see how the world is unfolding and they want to take a more active role. Frankly, they need different forms of revenue um, because venture capital isn't necessarily as available to them as it was in the past. And or they, you know, are just building technologies that lend themselves well to the defense world. But how do they get involved? 
that's pretty hard today. Um, it, it's pretty hard to engage. And, and the SBIR could be a unique step in that process. Um, you know, you had, you had Trey Stevens on uh, one of your earlier podcasts and, and, you know, he looked at SBIRs and it's like, look, people are going to get a little bit of money from SBIRs and they're going to think they have these huge defense contracts. And that's like absolutely the wrong mindset. And that's, he's, he's right. He's absolutely right. All the math and all the analysis says just because you get a phase one. And even if you get a phase two, the likelihood that you're going to get a big contract on the other side of it is essentially zero. But that doesn't mean that we can't use the mechanism a little bit better to boost those odds of innovative technologies coming into the DoD. Awesome. And maybe for those that don't know, could you dive deeper and explain the difference between phase one, phase two, and phase three? And also, you know, tell the listeners, what are the odds for these companies applying for SBARs in the, in the first place? And what do companies generally have to do in order to apply? So phase one is a, uh, depending on the agency, it's about a six month to a year term where you uh, fill out an application. In theory, you can get uh, what are called letters of support, people to kind of vouch for the interest in this technology or software or platform. Maybe talk, you know, you have to describe your commercialization of where you're gonna, how you're making money outside of it. You, you'll you'll find out over a period of time. You get six months to basically do business development and find more customers and and find product market fit is a strong word, but to to try and find end uses of how would the DoD really want this. In general, kind of what I advocate for is that the phase ones where they're $50,000, that doesn't do a lot for anyone. Where some agencies do larger phase ones, $250,000, that's a little bit more. But there are reasons why I actually don't think that that, like that phase is even useful in, in the future. Phase two is a, is a longer term contract. It's usually about a year to two years. Um, you get about something like $750,000 to a million and a half. Um, there have been some exceptions. And think of that more as um, you're really trying to demonstrate to particular customers um, that this is a very viable technology and meaningful. What's required in that process? Again, it's an application that you have to get, um, you know, accepted, and also things called uh, MOUs, memorandum, memorandum of Understandings, um, for people, you know, preferably people that are going to be buying the technology can really say, "Hey, we really need this. This is important to us." Phase three is really think of it more as like a hunting license. It means you can go after really big, larger contracts and program of records. Now, what Trey touched on is that getting through all those phases into phase three larger contracts, it's it's nearly impossible. And I would argue for especially for software co companies, so people that have software plays only, it's even more hard. So, you know, the the it's harder for for Palantir to get on a program of record. Than than an Andro, and and I would you know there, are, I can think of a handful of companies on my you know that that I know that were pure software plays that have gotten program of records, phase three contracts, big dollars. So so what does that mean? It it means that um, you know you you're scoped by about roughly you know how much money you could expect in the SBR program you could win. I did a little bit of a kind of a cost accounting uh, calculator for companies that want to get a phase one or phase two and think about the different cost structures that it might mean for them. And it is to say that like, yes, you know, a million and a half dollars is a lot of money for a lot of small companies, but what you have to put into it and what you can expect out of it, um, you really need to weigh that trade-off versus going in other directions. And so, you know, kind of the, the overarching theme is 
um, even in the best case scenarios that, that you can win these contracts and we can talk about the tactics, um, it, it's not going to be your path to make uh, you know, your, your company a, a, a unicorn by any stretch of imagination. Um, now, to, to make matters a little bit worse and we can have more positive side of the conversation, I spent a decent amount of time looking at who was actually winning these contracts and what are the conditions that are um, that improve your company's chances of winning. And, and you know, one of the things we'll, we'll talk about is there's a small number of companies that are actually taking a large amount of this uh, pie uh, each year just to, to refund their companies and their activities. So what does that mean for the average small tech company out here that doesn't necessarily have deep DoD roots? It means, you know, right off the bat, you're not fighting for the same pie that you are being marketed. You're, you're looking at something much smaller. Um, and then to, to make matters a little bit more complicated is to really boost your odds of winning if you don't have direct connections into the DoD, you often would want to consider using some advisory firm. And that costs money on top of, you know, your own time and energy and applications. So it is to say that, you know, frankly, I, you know, I looked at in my analysis, I saw easily 30% to, to 40%, depending on how you want to talk about our 50% of the total dollars allocated each year, go to the top one to 10% of firms that are just engaging every year, year in, year out. So there goes half the pie. If you want to engage with an advisory firm, that's, you know, they're going to take about another 20 to 30%, maybe even more uh, of the total dollars for people that they represent. And so now it's not that huge of a pie for you and your firm to go after these dollars. And then also we discount the fact that, you know, you don't necessarily, you're not going to make a ton of money on the other side of it. And so, um, and it's not to be glum, but what I was trying to do was understand and paint the picture of just like, this is actual reality. Um, we have the data, we can look at it. So let's be really thoughtful of when and why all of these tech companies would want to try to engage with the DOD. Um, and, and so that, you know, that's kind of a, a lot of the genesis of the, of the work that I did it was to just at least say, let's have an honest conversation about where we are at. Great. Well, there's so many directions that we can take this. But, you know, before we go deeper, I want to go back to something that you said that I, I don't think that anybody else on the show has brought up before, which is that you, you believe that it's a lot harder for these software first companies to get these contracts, get a program of record and even go through the SBRR process than, you know, more hardware focused companies. Why, why, why do you think that is? And, you know, it would be great if we could give a, a couple of examples. Well, I think why that is is in part because uh, defense has, you know, in general, been about buying, building, uh, building, buying, sustaining different types of weapon systems. So aircraft carriers, F-16s, you know, different types of uh, artillery and tanks. That that's the way that war was fought. It wasn't necessarily fought to the you know a large extent with ones and zeros. Um, so uh, I, I think the traditional budgeting pots of money go into R&D and they go into acquisition uh, procurement dollars and then sustainment. And the companies that made money really made sustainment dollars. And so you can, you can buy, um, you know, you can buy a drone from whatever vendor X or drones, um, 
but you might, you know, you, their sustainment costs might far actually exceed the procurement costs. And so um, I, I think a little bit of it is, is an evolution of, of how we think about our relationship uh, with the, the, the relationship between DOD and software providers specifically. I mean, it's not to say that AWS and Microsoft aren't doing exceedingly well because they're, they're doing just fine. But, it, you know, it is as you think about what is a program of record for a software vendor, there, there are definitely examples of companies that have won um, big dollars and larger contracts, but it's just not as prevalent just yet. And, and, and so, you know, you, you have to think mindfully about how you're engaging and what are you trying to sell the DoD as a software vendor. So, and, and frankly, I think that they don't, you know, th there are new models that the DoD is trying to solicit and understand, you know, would you pay for managed service API clicks? versus just buying an enterprise license for X. I think that those models are still being explored where they're a little bit more prevalent in in the in the commercial world today. So, you know, at, at the, I'm I'm a software vendor. Uh, that's my my company. M you know, my relationship with the defense world, you know, is something that I'm just going to have to kind of keep that in mind as well. How how do I think about longer term relationships and contracts? Um, and so, but, you know, this is where you see, uh, companies like Andrew, and we can bring them up. They will, they will have great procurement contracts, but they're going to do better in sustainment. Um, I mean, that's my anticipation. Totally. And you mentioned that it's really hard to, to get these contracts. The, the odds for the smaller companies are, are not that great. Is the process at least pretty consistent and reliable? Do companies generally know what's going to happen and when? This is where so so things like the NSF are pretty interesting and and, and so again and when we talk about macro themes and we talk about small business and relationship with between SBIR and the SBA and and these um, small business um, it you really need to have a little bit of finer level of granularity um, you know NSF when you apply they're they're very specific it's it's a rolling window you'll find out within days whether you pass the first gate. You can find out within a few months, usually for sure, if you got kind of past the second, and then you're allotted a certain amount of dollars. And so that that's different than the the DoD has primarily been a contracting SBIR dollars, and so it's more periodic. When solicitations come out, they're often for very specific things. So if you again, you're a software vendor that's doing cool AI versus you know a hypersonics vendor doing some really niche technology it's unclear each quarter to quarter when a new sbir kind of tranche should come out for the dod or different parts of the dod whether either of those technologies um that you you have would be eligible to apply for an sbir and so um so that's and that's just on the process of trying to engage with the department of defense and so you know you think about in the commercial world, when we think about customers coming to our site or customers downloading our app, you know, businesses are the same way. They're going to come, they're going to explore it. Is there any value to them? And in with the existing processes today, many companies would just walk away right away because there's nothing there. Um, it's not a rolling application. It's not, you know, something that you can easily just come back to. Um, so that's on that side. Now, if you're awarded dollars and the timing around that, now the, the DoD has been notoriously bad at time to letting you know that you've you've been awarded dollars and and then time to even deliver those dollars and you know there's a kind of rough gao report looking on the at all these different 
the agencies and the services about a year ago. Um, I, I mean, I think um, there's reason to believe that that will improve and, and focusing on quicker um, delivery of awards. It's something that even the Extension Act of 22 um, is trying to, to, to hone in on. Um, but yeah, so from a reliability standpoint, you can sell a contract in the commercial sector to a large enterprise, and those can take nine months to a year. But usually you don't have to also worry about like, wait, are they going to pay me for another six to eight months or not? Um, you have that figured out in the T's and C's right away. Um, and, and so that's, you know, in general, it's not great. Um, there's not necessarily a lot of transparency and clarity, but I think um, there are reasons for that. And there are reasons to believe that that will change and get better. On, on that note, can you share a little bit, what are some of your recommendations that, that you think could help make the process more reliable? For the commercial sector and the dual use technologies that we'd like to see be brought into the Department of Defense, um, my assumption is not all, and in some cases, not many uh, of these companies even know how to like fill out the forms that are required, which like which aren't hard in and of themselves, but um, the language is different. You know, doing some managerial accounting for your startup firm is, you know, often suspect at best. And so what I'd like to see is the the processes, the forms be simplified and, and demystified a bit for new entrants that are trying to participate in SBR programs. Um, mind you, a, a way, a very easy way to get disqualified is to just fill out some of the wrong numbers around your cost estimates and overhead. Um, sounds silly. But um, they get a lot of. There's a lot of applications that come through the door, and the first screen is just how do you eliminate ones that are incomplete or seem a little bit off. Now, you know, again, startups don't necessarily know how to do cost accounting because it doesn't make any sense, you know, for their startup at a stage of five people and a in a big AWS budget. So I would like to see the process demystified and simplified. Um, you know, a little bit of handholding because, like, that's the important part is. There are important parts of 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 thinking about legality um, of your of your what you say that you're doing, and then there are not important parts. Um, and I would argue that some of these areas are are less important than trying to field really innovative uh, technologies and people to be to engage with eventually, you know, and turn into technologies for the warfighter. So, I mean, I think I would make those types of changes. Um, you know, in the midterm, long term, um, finding better pathways for people. For companies that don't have cleared engineers, that don't have a facility clearance, like, you know, God forbid they have uh, founders that participate in recreational activities that are not necessarily as aligned with DOD uh, standards. Um, I, I mean, I think we need to find better pathways for these companies to still inject their technologies into the defense world. DARPA just released, the, the, they're basically trying to, to um, to address this very problem of how can you have sandboxes and how can you have technologies go into and be accessed by classes classified uh, or for classified environments without spending two to three years to get clearances and facility clearances and, and that whole headache. So I, I think we need to remove barriers of friction is probably the, the summary of what I'd like to see overall. Um, in terms of evaluating, uh, I think a really big burden that will happen uh, as part of the Extension Act is the the great thing is that there's a thing we'll talk about open topics that are out there that will encourage a lot of people to apply. The rough part about open topics is 
the actual review process and elimination process right now hasn't necessarily been funded um, in the same way that you would need to do to now evaluate lots of people that have lots of technologies. So how do you even have the right number of experts looking at all of these things when they're coming in the door? Um, so there might be a little bit of bumpiness still, um, but eventually like you want to know um, what I'd like to see is rolling open topics uh, for any new innovative te technology to come in the door. Just because you don't fit in one cycle in the year doesn't mean that you're not a great fit for the DOD and for our country. Um, so I'd like to see that. I'd like to see a simplified process um, for many uh, companies, a little bit more handholding for new emergence. Um, and then there's a last thing, and I write a little bit about it. Um, it would be very interesting to see much larger thematic type of uh, requests for applications that fall into open topics. So areas, let's say hypersonics or you know counter UAS or AI, and, and just leave those as blankets um, where you know longer term the, the PEOs, the program offices that are eventually going to be writing larger checks are very, very aware of what's coming in the door at all times um, at the lower levels. So it's better connectivity to an end state, which might boost the number of phase threes, programs of records, et cetera, for, for these companies in the DoD. You know, you know, less friction, there's uh, faster terms, you have a shorter valley and smaller valley of death um, and potentially a, a better path to an upside on the other side of it. Amazing. So to, to go back to something that you said, uh, one of your recommendations is to do more open topics. Can, can you explain what those are and in, in, why in particular they would be helpful? Yeah. So there, you know, I, I think the birth of open topics was maybe in part to deal with some of these the companies that are using and getting new money year in, year out called, you know, I call them the SBR mills, others uh, um, that's kind of the refer to it. But it's also to really encourage new entrants to, to work with the DOD. And so why would you want to do that? You would do that when you believe that the DOD itself the, as a collective didn't necessarily, they don't necessarily know all of their requirements. They don't necessarily know all the cool technologies that exist out there. And, and it would be to, you know, the idea of an open topic, um, some of them are thematic, some of them are not, some of them are rolling, some of them are time bound, but it's at least to say like, Hey, you know, you want to participate and work with us, um, show us what you have. Um, now this is very different than what is done today in many cases, not, you know, definitely at SBRs, but also in things like DIU where the solicitations are extraordinarily specific. And so, you know, again, if you're a company that wants to work with the DOD, you, you can come, you sign up on SAM, you, you know, you're looking at all the websites and it, there's just a lot of random one-off things that are highly customized, potentially either to a specific customer or I'm sorry, a specific vendor or um, in one very specific area. And so like that, that won't bring more companies in the door that are saying like, Hey, you should look at us and consider this new thing. Um, where open topics opens the aperture uh, a lot more for for new entrants and new ideas. Yeah, what I think is interesting that, that you're saying that comes to mind, it relates to the point that you said a, a while back, which is software companies don't necessarily work that way, right? Like uh, a lot of hardware companies, sure, like you have the plan and you have, you know, three years from now, you know exactly the, how much capital you're going to need. If you're just a software first company, you you iterate a lot faster, uh, and mm -hmm. you know the, the the deeply specific requirements may, mean it are not necessarily how how these companies think. Do mm -hmm. do you agree? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think there are plenty of reasons why 
uh, I would say prior to AFWorks's open topics, why this didn't make sense. And, and part of it is that like, yes, software companies don't know and they move really fast and they iterate through product features fast. Um, but it's also just to be fair, uh, you know, up through 2017 and 2018, there was a lot of blowback on working with the DOD, um, you know, specifically from software companies, large like Google or, or others that are small. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, a time when I was building a national security team at a software company. I mean, I saw all around me, um, which, you know, I personally thought was a little bit insane, not wanting to support the government. But again, I have a military family, I'm biased, whatever, that's fine. Um, but, you know, so, so the part of the issue that we saw is that both sides weren't necessarily engaging the right way, whether it's how to think about procuring and sustaining and putting on programs of records and new software vendors, or just the software industry itself wasn't doing as much with the DoD. Now, fast forward to 2022, it's a very different world. And what I'm excited about open topics is, is I think we will see a lot of new companies wanting to engage with defense tech. And this is going to be the way, for good or for bad, this is the, going to be the way that companies can start that relationship with the DoD. You know, frankly, I was trying to push for more reforms, but uh, you know, I because I think it's so important right now, I think the next five to 10 years are going to be wildly important for uh, the next 100 years for our, com our country. Um, but uh, you know, we didn't get all the, and the reforms I was pushing didn't totally pan out. Um, but I think there were some positive changes in, in open topics at uh, an agency and, and, and service level. Um, forcing that to be more broadly adopted is is going to be one such way. Awesome. To dive a little bit deeper on the on the process of SBRs, one of the things that's interesting is you know there's no clear uh, path to a program of record. Um, how could the government help make that path clear? Well, you know, ultimately, I would say there, there's a little bit of it that like really, really good vendors in general break through and and um, will sell in commercial sectors or they will raise money such that companies will understand or, or venture capitalists will understand that there's going to be a very large demand for this. And so SBIR doesn't have to be the only path to program of record. There are things like Incutel and DIU. Um, there are uh, different types of contracting mechanisms like OTA, OTAs um, that can help get you there. Um, the positive steps that I think people are, are, are that we've seen more recently, there are uh, contracts that are after the phase two that are called either TACFI or STRATFI, and they can range from, you know, the TACFIs about three, 400K to about one and a half million. And then STRATFIs are pretty big dollar amounts. They're 3 million to 15 million. Again, this is like another phase, and that that can help the transition to finding longer term commercial fit. In addition, the 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 um, the DoD rolled out uh, I don't know probably a month or two ago. Uh, this I it's called App Fit, and I'm gonna kill the acronym. But basically, it was a hundred million dollars to go to ten companies, uh, ten million dollars each to help them with their transitional path, um, and that that was a cool win. Um, but you know, one of the things I kind of griped a little bit about is, is I think with some basic reforms in the existing SBIR process, um, we could fund a lot more of those uh, AppFit style programs where 10, 20, 30 companies every year essentially get to, to punch that ticket and get a good amount of money to lay in all the rest of the defense infrastructure um, that is required clearances, running 
your software high side, um, uh, you know, having your facilities cleared, et cetera. Like these are all steps that make it slower and longer to work with the DOD um, and just more expensive. Um, and so I think those programs are great. Um, at the highest level, what would be very interesting to me is if the DOD, even when it's talking about um, this reform of overall acquisition, which takes five to seven years or to do, we got to get away from that a little bit, right? And and I I think that that's one area, but what it can do is just be more vocal and more integrated across the steps. So again, the program offices being, uh, the PEOs being tied closer to the Incutels, the DIUs, and the SBI award winners, um, having a very robust conversation, making sure that people understand, yeah, these are our general directions. We're not committing all of our capital to it, but roughly this is what it looks like. I, I think that top-down directions and then getting bottom-up demand through open topics, through um, other programs like DIU, um, that will feed the funnel and and make the the investments that companies need to make to to work with the DoD much more meaningful and and kind of digestible. Um, VCs will be, you know, some VCs like to see SBIR awards, but I don't know that many VCs that like to see many of them. And so you really need to keep showing progress. And and so, but I think that that's a way to do it is uh, kind of integrate some of the steps a little bit better, forecast and project what you, the needs will be uh, in a more consumable method, not like a weird. You know, not in the NDAA. Like that's not going to be the way to to do it. I think you have to find channels to keep saying, "Hey, this is the thematic topic that's going to be important over five years." And then founders will say, "Okay, cool. I want to invest in that. I want to invest in putting the energy to be competitive in that space." Awesome. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, SBIR Mills, which you mentioned before. Just to break break it up to people, what what are they? What you know? How do they exist? And you know. Why do why does the government let that happen? Well, I mean, again, I think there's a little bit of an evolutionary uh, path that that got here, where um, you know the SBA and SBIRs were were popular in the 80s and 90s. They they said this is a thing that the government wants to invest in small business. Let's go and do it. But if you look at the last 20 to 30 years of awards, um, you can look at the NSF and you see the NSF. I don't think any company or person has ever won more than six NSF awards at about a million to a million five a pop. So that basically is your upward bound on this new cutting edge scientific research. If you look at the DoD, the numbers are very different. And there are you know 20 to 30 companies that have taken uh, on the order of like three to four, I think it's like $3.5 billion from the Department of Defense just in phase one and phase two SBR contracts. And so what does that mean? That means companies are going back to the to the the SBR funds year in, year out, and they're getting, you know, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars every year just to do some research. Um, when I first started my analysis, I really tried to stay away from saying, hey, this is bad, because I didn't really know how much commercialization those companies had. Maybe they were building lots of amazing things. Maybe they were like, you know, a hundred people with all equivalent, the highest intelligent Google engineers, and they were just cranking through stuff. But part of the reason why these SBR mills are called mills is they they receive a lot of awards. Part of the reason there's disdain around them is the commercialization rate of many of these companies is pretty darn bad, meaning they are consuming these grant dollars year in, year out 
and they are not delivering really meaningful technologies to the warfighter. And so, I mean, I, I could, there are dozens of companies that um, have received individually more money than the, you know, Andrils, the you know, Vanivar Labs, the, you know, I worked at, I was at Primer. You can roll all of these companies up in the kind of new defense tech era, and they've received collectively way less money than individual companies that have been in the past. And so why does the DOD let this happen? Again, one thing, it's kind of take a little bit of slice of humble pie and say, frankly, the software world, especially, um, but the, def- the the tech world wasn't wanting to be that engaged with the DOD because it's so hard to get real contracts. And so some of the, the onus in the fight was on us. They needed, or the blame is, is to be on us. They needed things to get done and they found people that were going to do it year and year, you know, try things that would try uh, this stuff year in, year out. And so, you know, that's a reality that we face. What we're seeing over the last five years is many more companies are trying to engage with the Department of Defense. And so now we're shedding a little bit more of a light on these repeat awardees or mills and saying like, wait a second, these guys are taking a huge chunk of the pie and they're not necessarily turning this stuff into cutting edge tech. Why would we even want them there? And so, you know, um, I think part of it, again, the story is evolutional. Part of it is there's a belief that we are protecting the defense industrial base. And I spent a fair amount of time trying to understand, is that true? And the short answer is no. What you're seeing at most of the companies that are taking a lot of money year in, year out, is they're, they are not hiring more people. They are not hiring uh, at a pace of Andro. And yet they've received hundreds of millions of dollars more grant, do- grant dollars through SBIR than Andro ever had. Um, what they are doing is they are existing as a small business, staying as a small business, operating as a small business that just consumes these dollars. And so again, they weren't doing anything wrong, you know, per se, but they weren't delivering the level of value that I think we should expect moving forward uh, with small business trying to work with with the government. Um, and so, and then there's other stuff. You know, there was a plenty of lobbying, and I saw a lot of that. Um, you know, there are stakeholders that tend to make a lot of money to keep the the system the way it is today. So Ben, on, on that note, w- what's your take on all the advisors and consultants that, that are part of this process? Well, I mean, I think they're um, they're serving a necessary function in the, the process that exists today. Um, I don't quite equate them to an outsourced business team um, or sales group. I think that that's, um, y- you know, it's, a little bit different. Uh, many of these advisory firms are ex-DOD procurement people um, that have a Rolodex of contacts that can help um, matchmake, right? And, and what they take in return is um, there's monthly retainers, usually you know somewhere three or four to eight thousand dollars. Maybe it's increased because of inflation. They can take equity stakes uh, of your company, and in some cases, they take a, a portion of whatever dollars you receive through the SBIR. I think they can be really efficient for people that have never engaged with the DOD, like getting a phase one and then trying to find end customers that are going to sign off on that. Like that's impossible. It's really, really hard to do um, unless the DOD has approached you first and said, this is amazing tech. Um, Otherwise you're never really going to be able to like reach out to generals and say, Hey, why don't you, you know, learn about my cool software? That's not, that doesn't happen that often. 
unless you're from that community in that world. So I think they they offer a value-added service. But what I kind of call out in the first po post is you need to decide if those economics make sense for you upfront. Um, because you know a million and a half dollars is a lot of money until you have to spend a, a decent amount of it uh, on managing the project, you know, getting access to data in a different way that you may have not in the commercial sector. Um, and, you know, potentially investing in one of these firms that's going to get you across the line. So, you know, it, it's not to say that it's not the right path forward, but I think people need to have their eyes wide open when they, when they step into that, into that forum. Awesome. And then, so Congress recently passed the SBIR, SCTR Extension Act of 2022. What, what did it entail? What, and what was the good, the bad, and the ugly that came out of it? Yeah. So, I mean, the, it was an interesting process that um, I wasn't really intimately involved with until I just kind of happened to do that analysis and write the first blog. And then um, I got looped into it. The, you know, what was on LinkedIn and Twitter and the media is this was, you know, a program that is wildly successful for small business. And Senator Rand Paul was, you know, trying to put a fork in it and and let it die. Um but you know the the reality is the kind of the the critics and the detesters of of what was the extension act were basically raising hand and saying hey wait like well one what are we going to do about some national security risks around funding um companies that have foreign investment um foreign you know eyes on it uh, and there were some refinements senator uh, Joan Ernst was was trying to push for some tweaks to the overall extension act and and those those went through and largely what she asked for um but then there was you know the 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 complaints that came out of uh, uh Rand Paul's office were really more around abuse and waste of the system which is you know you you can love or or like or, or not care about senator the, there's things that are thematic there um, but the the asks of of that group were really to address the mills that were taking that are taking year in year out somewhere between let's say thirty and fifty percent of the SBIR dollars from the DoD and then many other agencies as well. I mean these companies are making a lot of money and and you know again very questionable track records. So so the good that that came out of this bill, um, first of all, I think that it ended up getting a lot of attention. In the media, at a time when questioning our defense tech sector um, was uh, there, um, you know, uh, uh, my contribution were a handful of blog articles, a couple um, things in Bloomberg, and you know, some great memes. Um, but but I think part of what I was trying to represent is for the the founder community, for the VC community, how would we think about this and and some of the benefits. Um, you know, not everyone has to agree with me, um, but what we saw that was good. Uh, specifically to your question, um, open topics were mandated at, at an agency level, uh, at least one batch of open topics for everyone. Um, there were improvements made over trying to make at least some degree of the awards be distributed faster uh, in, in a more meaningful way. Um, and there were some national security concerns addressed. And, th and then there were there were some basically some steps to say, hey, if you if you win a lot of awards, you have to have uh, higher degrees of commercialization than we've asked in the past. And, and I think this got a lot of sound bites that it was going to be an effective, useful thing to limit the largest abusers of the system, if you want to use that word, abusers or, uh, or the SBIR mills. What I then did is I just said, well, okay, who's going to qualify in these cases? Because again, like 
this data is all publicly available. And um, you know, my analysis said, frankly, it's not going to impact that many firms. A handful of firms, 10-ish, that will potentially have to have slightly higher commercialization rates. And, and even in that case, the commercialization rates are pretty, I don't know, not exciting. Um, you're an investor, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, hey, that, that team has done exceedingly well. Um, so, so, you know, that's where I think the, the good was that there were some steps put in place. Um, it, it was limited to three years uh, as a reauthorization period. It was going to be at least five. Um, and so I think the positives are also that people are just going to have more eyes. They're going to see how open topics play out over this next few years um, in terms of the number of companies that are going to be receiving dollars. I think you will see that jump. Um, but all in all, the you know the mills themselves were kind of not really impacted. Um, and so there is obviously a lot of lobbying by um, a few groups that um, stand to gain benefit uh, by not uh, kind of quashing this activity. And so that's where some of the reforms that you know I was a big uh, proponent of, I tried to do objective analysis on appropriate thresholds that I would, how I would consider capping some of these firms. Um, that didn't get through, uh, at least not this time around. Incredible. And Ben, maybe to kind of draw this to a close, are there any other recommendations that you think that people in the government, people that have influence on this should be really taking a look at that we have not covered in depth today? Yeah, I mean, I think um, as much as this sounds like a real critique of the program, um, I think this could be a wildly valuable program, uh, an incubator for defense tech. I think that um, if venture capitalists and their portfolio companies get a better sense of what it is and what it's not, I think there are strategies that our world can take to improve um, success. Um, it's understanding the pathways from uh, phase one to phase two to, to phase three, those likelihood of winning, you want to understand it. It's having relationships with advisory firms, maybe even at a VC level. Um, you know, there are examples of that, that um, ex-DOD folks that have their own VCs um, and there are, you know, a handful of really smart folks working in that space. Um, but I think we have to say, look, are we going to work with the government? We have to have some collective knowledge to go and, and, and engage. Um, so I, I think those, I, and, I, but I, and I think as much as I kind of have given a, a tough lens on some of this, I think those companies, uh, are, I think founders need to have an eye looking forward and saying that gov tech and, and defense tech is is an area where they can make money. Um, now, how does the SBIR facilitate that? Um, I would move much more to the NSF model. Open topics at any time of the year. If you have cool tech, knock on a door. We're going to make the application process simple. We're going to remove barriers of friction um, for your companies to uh, to engage with us. And and then we're going to have steps lined up along the way. So I, I think the relationship still needs to change and 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 mature um, overall. You know, in terms of other things that I would recommend, I, I would really put strong strong caps around engaging with the SBR program. Um, no company, you know, companies like Qualcomm have received money. Companies of Andrel have received like Andrel have received money, but they're 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 not dependent on the sugar. That is SBIR. They've gone off. They've commercialized on their own. I think we have to really, basically say, look, this is a program. It is not a program of record, and so you're not going to be dependent on it forever. 
and you're going to get kicked out at some point. Um, if you did kind of what I was recommending um, in terms of caps, uh, basically, I, I think that it's something around eight phase ones a year, four phase twos, and then a combination of a strat phi, tac phi. That's going to fill the pipeline of the great majority of any company, period, in terms of their workload and what they can do for the DOD. And it's also going to oper- open up a couple hundred million dollars every year for new companies to engage or to stand up these other programs like AppFit. And so I, I think that that is, um, I would still push that idea of caps, whether it's total dollars or annual allotments. Um, and I think you'll see a real phase shift in um, the amount of technologies and, and founders and defense space engaging um, with the overall DOD right now. Fantastic. And Ben, maybe do you want to just give a quick plug on, you know, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to to, to reach you? And also, I know we haven't talked about this today, but would love if you could just give a brief overview of what you're doing now at Yurts. Yeah. So um, uh, people can contact me, um, you know, my, my LinkedIn profiles out there in the world. Uh, I do have a Substack email address, um, Ben, ben at Yurts. I'm going to get a lot of crazy spam now, I suppose. Um but uh, yeah, so so they can contact me through those channels. Happy to discuss. Um, I will continue to write on some different topics that are in the AI and and policy and defense space. There's there's a lot of really cool things happening. Um, it, you know, I've I've stopped writing about it for a few months because I, I did start a company called Yurts that um, we're we're really focused on building out a, a developer platform for uh, companies that want to engage with this these next generation of, of foundational models. I think that there are incredible opportunities and there's a ton of potential right now that is uh, starting to be unleashed by the foundational models, the the GPTs, the OPTs, the uh, Whisper, the stability diffusion. Um, but we haven't yet as a as a as a country or as a as a tech sector made them highly consumable, accessible, uh, built with the right form factors for business use cases. And so, um, what we are working on is, is trying to build that platform so software developers and companies have better uh, ways to engage and work with these large foundational models. Incredible. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Lucas. I appreciate being here. <laughs>